Welcome to Start By Listening, the podcast about sexual harm and trauma. We are centered on educating and empowering our Western Kentucky communities. Our goal is to transform the way we talk about sexual harm and trauma. Transformation begins by listening to understand. We talk so you can listen today and change the world tomorrow. Well, welcome back to another Start By Listening. Hope you guys are having a beautiful fall here in Kentucky. It is lovely this past week. We have a very, I don't want to say spicy uh, cast here today. Uh, Some amazing women who work at New Beginnings and who also did some interesting work prior to coming to New Beginnings. And so I am so excited today to introduce some of my favorite people. And they're going to tell you a little bit about who they are. And our topic for today um, is going to be a little spicy. Raising sexual offenders or something along those lines. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to these amazing ladies and they're going to introduce themselves today. Who wants to go? Yo, 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 I'll go first. My name is Becky Roby. I'm the clinical coordinator at New Beginnings. Um, been here a while, and previously I worked with um, juveniles who had been convicted of sexual offenses um, in my past life. So I'm I'm pretty excited to be on this podcast. Uh, I think it's good information. I think it's things that people are not thinking about. Um, there there needs to be more um, proactivity in terms of this topic because we are definitely raising and will be raising sex offenders. Scary, scary shit. So I think it needs to be put out there and it needs to be discussed. I'll go. I'm Crystal and I'm a therapist at New Beginnings. Before I started working at New Beginnings, I was actually working at a juvenile sex offender um, agent sort of facility. Um, and I've read the book stopitnow.org, which is also a really good book about preventing raising sex offenders. So, um, anyways, I got a lot of information for that. Glad to be here. Yay. I can go. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name is Tara, and I'm a therapist at New Beginnings as well. And I've been here for quite a while. Um, Prior to working at New Beginnings, I was trained and did work with juvenile sex offenders. Um, So the information that I learned then was very beneficial coming over to an agency and then working with victims of sexual abuse. So glad to be on this morning. Oh, my gosh. So did all three of you work at the same like agency? Becky and I did. I worked at um, Women's World Treatment Center. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Tara and Crystal, you guys did an act. You did a course on being able to do therapy with juveniles, identifying patterns. I did not have that training. Um, when I was working with this, this on what we would, what we actually called the sex offender unit, which isn't the most <laughs> therapeutic title for a unit. Um, and, and to clarify, juveniles, 
who have been charged with sex offender sex offenses because they cannot be referred to as sex offenders because they are not 18 years of age. Um, so there was a lot of even political talk regarding juveniles who have charges of sexual offenses um, and the different you could not label them as sex offenders and rightly so um, because they're not 18. So. so did you um, only work with people who were actually charged or also um, perps who were referred for treatment? Like, was this specifically treatment if they were referred or did they have to have the charges for you to be able to work with them? They had to have the charges. So they had a DJJ worker and they had to have been charged and then court ordered treatment. And then treatment there usually lasts a l- about over a year. Yeah, over a year. And- they were lower functioning individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked at a facility where, yeah, they were charged and placed there. It was like a detention center and it was usually a year there too. And it was a, it was a lot of different types of kids. It, it was all males. Hmm. What about you, Becky and Tara? Did you only work with males or did you have any females that you all worked with? It was an all male, it was an all male unit. I don't think um, not at that time. I don't think there was enough population for females. That would be really interesting research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be like if there were like where would they go for treatment and how, how do you provide that? I feel like there might be one place back then to go, but I'd have to research it and and because it's it's been twenty nineteen ninety eight is when I started there, so. Um, long time ago. So you all started there and now you're here on the other side, right? The perpetration versus the survivorship. Um, I don't know. Let's just get into it. What's the one thing that you really wanted to, to bring today that you want our listeners to know? Oh, Becky's like, oh. I think there's too much. Um, I think at the time that I was working on the sex offender unit, I couldn't even have imagined what things would be like now in terms of tablets, cell phone use, unsupervised social media exposure. Um, I mean, I can remember when I was a kid and I saw my first Playboy and it was a magazine and I was, you know, I don't know, 12, 13, 14. And it was like, oh, I know what that is. I've heard about it. There wasn't like, oh, the curiosity of, of the body. Um, what does another anatomy look like? But back back when we were working with these juveniles, I couldn't have even imagined that even the title raising sex offenders it means a whole new meaning in um, this time this era and this time of kids being unsupervised of watching shows that are not appropriate, watching pornography, um, thinking that certain things that they do watch is what love and sex look like. It, I mean, I could just go on and on and being groomed on the internet. Yeah. Oh yeah. Being groomed on the internet. And all these things are being glamorized and normalized and, you know. 
it grows. They are they are smarter than the police, than the FBI, than these sex offenders just keep changing online and changing their ways. They save pictures and meet up and yeah, it's scary. Just the thought about raising the sex offenders is if someone is exposed to content in a young period and they don't and haven't had any education and it is fostered um, and there's attention and there is sensations following, um, whether it's just viewing the porn or interacting with another kid, then we're just getting kid on kid sexual abuse. And then that kid's going to go and um, be experimental with another child and so on and so forth. Um, we have a very big concerning issue on our hands that will not get better until things are restructured. Parents feel comfortable talking to their kids about bodies and monitoring and supervision. Um, and I'm going to be very dismal and tell you that this is disheartening for me because I don't, a greater of the population, I feel like do not do that than actively do. Here's a, here's a question that I have. So sexual abuse just kind of started being reported probably about the 70s, 80s, 90s. And we have guidelines on what is appropriate age sexual behavior. But how do we have those guidelines when we're not sure when who's been sexual abused, who hasn't told, how many people in the past didn't tell, and all this has gotten passed down, how do we know what sexually appropriate behaviors are for children, for real? I don't know if we can know that. If we never, if this just started coming out, and there's been so many times in the past where perpetrators have perpetrated on people way before it started coming out, and it was probably worse than it is now as far as privacy and keeping it private and um i don't know that just i just thought about that yesterday thinking about this and it's like how do we even have guidelines mm, that's a good question mm -hmm. tara i think you had something that you were getting ready to say i think coming to new beginnings it was very interesting to see how much education is is very much the same like everything that I learned going through the juvenile sex offender program was very much in correlation with the same education that I provided victims at New Beginnings. You know, like when you're working with sex offenders, they have to identify ways in which they cross boundaries, they desensitize, they groomed their victims. You have to process what they did to their victims, their feelings. And then on the flip side, you know, working with victims, you have to help them identify ways in which they were groomed, their boundaries were tested. And so the education was is very, very similar when working with both populations. Hmm, wow. I never stopped to think about that, but I've never worked on the other side. So that is really interesting. It's almost, what's the word, the inverse kind of, of um, knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. Was, and back then, was there any kind of restorative justice practices between perpetrators and survivors? Was that even a thing? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> I mean, but the way I witnessed it, 
I didn't know for sure if it was restorative justice. Did y'all have to do the committing offense and then they had to read the committing offense to their parents and to the sometimes the victim if it was a sibling? Yeah, they had to group. do it group. They had to like start in group. They had to read their offense in group. Well, they had to do it in therapy, then they had to do it in group, and then they had to keep moving forward and do it like in family therapy and to the victim and Mm-hmm. Oh my God! How effective! Yeah. Could you imagine being the sibling that had sit through this? Person? How traumatizing, right? <laughs> You're sitting here, and I swear, God, I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this from someone, but it kind of sounds like trauma-focused CBT. Just said the perpetrator. Yeah. Oh my God! And, that, and that's still very much a practice. I mean, to my knowledge, when they're doing reunification between siblings. You know, I mean, still, I I know at New Beginnings, we can't directly work on, you know, sex offender behaviors. But in my other job, you know, I do come across it, too, still as well. And so, I mean, that's still a practice that they do is that they have to discuss these offenses in front of their family and the siblings mm-hmm. to do reunification. You know, when we were working there, Tara. I don't recall if the focus was ever on making sure the family had the victim in treatment and that someone prepared them for what was going to happen in these sessions, because I don't feel like the therapist, because I I was not an active, I was in school, um, master's school when I was working on the unit. So I was not a therapist. I was not a licensed therapist at that time. But I did do groups and I did work individually um, with the offenders. And as far as I can remember, there was not a comprehensive approach. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I don't remember that being um, something that we discussed or a topic. Even, I mean, I have to be honest, and Crystal, you may have a better memory. Even going through the training, I don't know if we really focused on victims and the the help that they were receiving yeah. and to make sure that they were I don't remember that I don't remember that but you know what we sure as hell do it on this end when we know that a perpetrator is in treatment we are the first ones that are to get a release for the treatment center to make sure are they incorporating the victim um, and I think that was probably subconsciously when we started working with the victims, it's like, wait, we can't do this work. They can't do that work without the victim and the victim has to be ready. And a lot of times it's more focused on if the perp is ready, have they labeled all their offenses? Have they went through every single offense? Are they ready to read it out loud? Can they say the words? Um, are you know, it, I feel like the focus was there. And then on the flip side, we're very much like, wait, wait, wait. And, and it's Does not the victims even want to do it. <laughs> I'm sure children just are like, I can't, you know, I do whatever I got to do. Or are the offenders going to a step down treatment program before they go home? Um, There was just a lot of, there's a lot of questions that were out there. And those are the things that you focus on when you have a victim whose perpetrator is family um, that's in treatment. You want to do a full comprehensive approach. You want to know, is this going down? How's this person doing? I need a timeline or they have they even admitted to their offenses. We also had mixed types of offenders. Y'all probably did too, because it wasn't a huge program, but like we I'd have a kid who committed uh 
sexual assault on a peer. And then in the same group, you'd have a kid that sexually assaulted a child. And to me, that is not the same thing. Like if you're, you may be sexually attracted to children. That's different to me than raping somebody, your peer or older, or like somebody raped raped their mom in my program. So those are totally. Yeah. Very different different ways to approach things. Um, But if we're going to talk about raising actual sex offenders, um, the thing that I read this book probably 20 years ago and it stuck in my mind and it still does and nothing's changed really. But what they talk about, so I copied off a piece of paper, I mean, a, a form off their site, not a form, an information handout thing. And it's 15 questions about your thoughts and behaviors that only you can answer. And they're all about, do you have sexual attraction to children or underage teenagers? Um, it's all about your thoughts and, and what your sexual preferences are as far as kids. And they talk about, we don't do prevention. We do tertiary. I think that's what the word is, tertiary prevention, where the kids are just supposed to tell whenever they feel uncomfortable. So where they come from is you talk to your kids about being sexually attracted to children. You... um they have a hotline you can call and talk about your sexual fantasies to see if they are appropriate or not. Um, like if you're feeling weird about it, you can, they've got, actually got a service. You can message and talk about those. Um, yeah. I mean, they, I feel like that's real prevention from um, raising a sex offender is actually talking to your kids about sex period and then talking to them that it is real that people have sexual attraction for children we're not sure how that happens we don't know if it's genetic we don't know if it's well that book talks about you can even get accidentally attracted to children in certain situations um and so that's the prevention really and we are not doing that and i don't mean we as an agency i mean we as a society are not talking to your kids about that well i mean i I have fur babies i don't have two-legged babies but in what world is there a class like to help parents understand like i'm just thinking oh my god i I don't want to laugh because it hurts but I'm thinking about when my mom sat me down at the table at age nine and brought out the puberty book and talked about sex and vaginas and penises. And um, she didn't use the word orgasm, but sperm and how babies get made. Like that was pretty like badass for 1982, 83. But I can't imagine my mom sitting down at a kitchen table with me and saying, okay, Jennifer, we're going to talk about this word called pedophilia and if you have any fantasies or drink like how how do you even do y'all see where I'm going with this like how how do you get comfortable to have that level of a conversation with a child and how do you make it age appropriate I don't know but we need to figure that out at market oh my god holy shit out Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, think about it. I mean, that's why sex offenders 
continue the behavior for so long. They're not addressing it as a kid. They're too ashamed and embarrassed the stigma. I mean, there's not a place like, I mean, I, like I, I tell people all the time, like, say you're, uh, you have substance abuse issues, you know, you can go to any type of treatment program and say, this, this is what I'm struggling with, or I'm struggling with this. There is no place that you can say, I'm struggling with these deviant thoughts without <laughs> the risk of being charged, without the risk of, so normally they're not getting into treatment until, you know, they are caught or they are charged. Um, because they're not coming forth and sharing this information. And the saddest part is, you know, it, a lot of it is sexual abuse within the home. You know, you have two siblings and and that to me is just heartbreaking in general because I see so many parents who then have to struggle with that because their other child who was the offender is going to come back home. That is their child. They do love them. It can't be, you know, because people are like, once somebody commits this crime, how could you ever look at them? How could you ever love them? We should shame them. We should do this. That also is their child. And you have to, you have to do reunification. You have to. So, I mean, there's a time period where I see like, you know, the siblings while they're going through treatment, one is staying in one home, one is staying in another home, or one is off to treatment facility. But eventually they do have to live underneath the same roof again. So I'm hearing like prevention is key. Education is key to all of this. But how effective were you seeing treatment before that reunification? Like, do you think the treatment that all of y'all were using back then, was it effective? Um, did these perps go on to perp again? And has treatment changed over the last X amount of years since you guys have been working with offenders? So Shelby, even thinking that treatment Treatment working is only dependent on the person you're working with because the thoughts never go away. So it's whether you act on them or not. So if I'm driving down the road and I have road rage, the thought whether to punch that person out um, at the stoplight versus actually doing it. And that's where that's that's where the key is. And we also know and Crystal and Tara, please correct me if I'm wrong. It has to do mostly with opportunity. So, I mean, that's where you just have to implement <clears throat> safety, like alarms on doors, you know, doors locked, cameras, you know, different things like that. Because I think that's where I, <laughs> that was the hardest thing for me. I think there was a big realization, you know, you're going through the sex offender training and you're working with these offenders and, you know, you're doing all this work and they didn't really talk about that these tactics may not work, that these people may, the chance of them reoffending is like 99%, you know, like they, they didn't really give those, those statistics, you know, you're thinking like I'm doing all this good and then coming to new beginnings and you're seeing, you know, the statistics of, no, the, these people reoffend. This is why we have a sex offender registry. This is why we have you know, all these things put in place because they do reoffend. And then I've had so many victims tell me like, what's the point in doing a victim impact statement? What's the point in doing this? Because they're just going to reoffend. They're just going to continue to do this. So it's like, like Becky said, you know, how do you just teach them that? And then how are they honest and say, you know, I've gone through treatment and I've gone through all of this. And now five years, are they going to go to somebody and say these thoughts are still occurring? Yeah, because 
it's not a very open and welcoming situation. And I also think sex offending is on a spectrum. And I do think there are people who are attracted to children that do not act on it. And I don't know how they do that. And I don't know how we find them to find out how they do that. But I do believe that they're out there. Um, and But there's nowhere for them to come forward either. It, it's just not... Um, I mean, until we made sexual abuse okay to talk about, which it's still not 100%, but if we're talking specifically about our area, in 1998, we had five clients a week. Now we have, I don't even know, we have 100 clients a week maybe coming in and out. Um, And so that's not because people started sex offending more. That's because people feel comfortable telling and talking about it. But there was a time when nobody talked about it ever. I still think I still think the numbers could increase too, just based on desensitization, based on social media, based on um, the normalization of which. So when sorry, it's just oh. new new crimes. Yeah, yeah. But Becky, so with that um, exposure to these things, are we saying that? people who offend like it's because they were exposed at such a young age and they became desensitized and now they're just going to be offenders forever and they can never change that because those thoughts are always going to be there so we have to prevent it before it happens does that mean just anyone anyone can be a sexual offender if they were exposed to the wrong yes stuff at a young age so when we say scary thought Mm -hmm. it's exactly it's twofold it could be like Crystal is saying, there's like this organic attraction to um, kids or the organic attraction to not being able to identify vulnerable populations and just wanting to engage in sexual activity. And then it is a learned behavior that can be created due to exposure. And some of the, some of the trainings that we went to and the um, what is the lady's name that we use the content um, and she did the sex offender treatment program in Oregon. Do y'all remember off the top of your head? She died. Jane Han, Jane Hyman, or was this the other one? She's dead. Jane Hyman was the one that did the lie detector tests um, about it, when they came to therapy to see if they were offending. Was it Kavanaugh? Yeah, Tony Kavanaugh Johnson was the one we brought here, and she did okay. the. I was yeah. thinking, I'll have to look it up. We use the pamphlet, the Predator pamphlet that we give out to parents, the secondary non-offending parents, to help um, them to see grooming techniques. She's one particular person in this video and this training that we watched sticks out to me. And he said he remembers it very clearly. It started with um, like pantsing and pulling his pants down and thinking it was funny. And he got more attention and more attention from it, from just the pantsing. And he could remember he identified that as his, there's like um, a memory that they can associate with when you're able to identify when you realized that things had changed and his was, I remember they thought it was funny. And then I just kept escalating with my behaviors until here I am. I'm an offender. And I was just like, Holy shit. I remember one of the examples that they used in my training was, you know, a a child was at school and the teacher disciplined him, you know, like did something and the child was very angry. And then 
you know, very, very angry at the teacher for what they had done. Um, but then also maybe the teacher they were attracted to for some reason. And then later that night they're at home and they're in their room and it, it's private. And so they begin to masturbate. They're angry, they masturbate. And they also think of the teacher in a sexual way. So then you're grouping the feeling of anger along with this sexual attraction. Then they're masturbating, then they ejaculate. And it's, it's so complicated. But see, when does it when does it cross from like deviant sexual behavior, but it's a kink and it's consensual and you're having that conversation with your partner to like going and straight out being an offender? Is that like something you in your brain that causes that? You don't talk because, about it with your partner. Well, I mean, I think well, that's what makes you an offender, but it's right. deep down, like what what is that like? line that you cross where you are this is consensual this is deviant but like it's what i'm into because i was exposed to some weird crap as a child to i'm going to harm other people without their consent power and control lack of empathy lack of compassion for others no regard for consequences Growing up in a home where you're emotionally neglected, when you're physically abused, I mean, being treated that way can mix up all kinds of things for people and what they use for comfort. And And I can honestly say, working with some of the offenders that I've worked with, um, they did think it was a consensual relationship because they had groomed so well. Like they had groomed so, so well and the victim didn't say no. And then you have a younger victim too, this is very confusing because it does feel good to my body. So they're not necessarily saying no and screaming and crying, even though they don't want it done. Um, So a lot of the offenders I worked with truly felt like this was a consensual, consensual thing. So then that's very confusing for them. Adults do too. Yeah. So that was, I mean, and then you're working with some offenders who have a low IQ. So that that's a, that's a hard thing to address with them when they thought it was it's very confusing for them they knew it was wrong within a part of them thought it was right and then it's like how do you reteach and and rewire some of these thought processes that they were having but uh, they justify i've i've had there it's all justified (laughs) you probably saw that too becky like it's all justified when especially when Adults and they have things on the internet that can confirm their beliefs of man and boy love. It's appropriate. It's something we should all have, just like other people have rights. It they can get confirmed in their beliefs online. So I just had a thought. I had two thoughts. Number one, we need to do a podcast on. Deviant sexual behavior versus kink and trauma. What do y'all think about that? Now they're starting to use kink in treatment. So that's something interesting. I think that's versus sexual offending. Do you see how like you got three, like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Then I had a second thought of what if we do a part two with you all? Because I think we just kind of scratched the surface. Would you mm-hmm. all, would the three of you all be willing to do a part two on this topic of raising sex offenders? Because Shelby asked some great questions about mm-hmm. like how effective is treatment? What's, I mean, what's the recidivism rate? Um, restorative justice. 
20 years ago versus restorative justice now. I don't know. Would you, would you all be willing to come back and do a part two? Sure. Yeah, but I think there's also a lot of I don't knows that follow some of those questions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a complicated. And that's, yeah, but I don't know is okay because we're starting the conversation and people are listening and thinking about things they may not have thought about before. Yeah. And I do think I do think there's a spectrum, like Crystal was saying. And when Jennifer approached us with this podcast, my brain seems to be stuck on because I do have two small children of how we are raising sex offenders because of the lack of supervision, um, how social media is a babysitter. And at what point do parents sit down and talk about what a consensual sexual relationship looks like? Um, When we have teenagers who are coming into our office who are telling us that they lost their virginity to their boyfriend and it was consensual. And he, um, I'm just going to use quotes of words verbatim that clients have told me when he jizzed on my face or he made me swallow his cum. Um, and they, and we talk about, okay, how's your thoughts about that? Do you feel like that that is what other sexual relationships look like and sound like? Uh, yes, absolutely. That's what boys do. They disrespect. My, I mean, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, oh, we've got a lot of education to do because it's normalized based on the fact that these kids are watching porn at a very young age. Sorry about the beep. My coffee maker is telling me that it's no longer brewing warm coffee and it's shutting off. <laughs> um, you hear it. So it, it's it's those moments when you know. Wow. Parents need to wake up. And the type of parenting that's being done. Guardians need to wake up. Yeah. And you got grandparents raising kids because of substance abuse. They going to have that conversation? Hell no. They're not. Do they have any racial trauma? Absolutely. And what you said, Becky, and how many missed opportunities happen because parents are uncomfortable to have the conversations like I have three kids and with all of them growing up you know as a toddler at a very young age there has been something something with all three of them that has came up that they they had no idea was inappropriate you know rather I walked through the house naked or I did this or I you know I said this word or I did this where I have to stop in that moment and say wait a minute and do some type of education where and if so many missed opportunities where it could have taken place, but we don't because we're afraid and we don't know what to say. And then it's kind of like, oh my gosh, just something we immediately go to something must have happened to my kid. So we 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 or, go there versus let me just educate them. Yeah. Yes. But they're or, triggered by their own trauma and can't yeah. talk about it. Yeah. So they as a parent, a lot of times we go to, oh my gosh, did something happen in them? Because they just did this or they used this word or they said this versus, okay, I just need to address this because they're curious and this is their body or they overheard something or they saw something, you know, and and doing that education in that moment. Because, I mean, as a parent, it's happened with all three of mine. There has been 100 percent been a situation, if not more than once, where I'm like, oh, wait a minute, come here. Let's let's talk about that. Like, what was that? 
Perfect. Well, um, hey guys, this has been absolutely amazing. I want to be respectful of Crystal's time because she has to get off of here. But we had a really heavy conversation today and I'm so excited for part two. We have a couple minutes. Let's do like two or three rapid fire questions. Get to know you fun. Let's like shake the energy out, right? Take this heaviness. I feel cheap. And <laughs> I'm sorry. You got to save it for part two. No honey, but I can't, let I us can't know. I got, I got a question. First question. Uh, Becky, Tara, Crystal, go in that order. If you could have any superpower in the world, what would it be? Time machine. Time machine. Am I good? Go for it. Yeah, you go. I'm flying. Flying all day long. I would say flying, but then I'm scared of heights. I think I'd want to be like. I think I'd want to be like superhuman, like super power strength and climb and do whatever. Being invisible is kind of creepy. You don't want to be creeping, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. Like, yeah. Unless I'm going in a bank. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next question. What is the one gadget you cannot live without? Uh, one gadget I can't oh. live without? It could be anything. Yeah, anything. Uh, well, I'm OCD and everybody knows this. So it's going to have to be like my floor cleaner or my vacuum. I used to tell people like, you know, I really like you if I say I love you more than I love my vacuum. <laughs> Didn't know that about you. I love that now. I think I'm going to look for a vacuum Christmas ornament for you this year. Yeah. Like uh, if I love you more than I love my vacuum. Uh, gadget. It's not a gadget, but my first thought was my vehicle. Gadget. I mean, it's got stuff in there that's beyond sticks and stones. So yeah, actually, gadget. the first thought that came in my head was a pair of scissors for some reason because you said gadget, <laughs> and I was like, wait, I can probably live without my pair of scissors. Uh, mine is phone. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me too, okay. girl. What is your ice cream flavor? Favorite ice cream flavor? Uh, Banana. I'm I'm very eclectic on flavors, so I'll go with vanilla, but I mix a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> it's hard Not to pick. Anything chocolate with brownies, no anything, yeah, anything <laughs> in it. Awesome. Ladies, wow. I, I mean, I love you all. I've loved you all for five years now. Uh, six, six, six this month coming up. Um, but thank you for saying yes, as always. Um, we appreciate your time. And boy, today has been just interesting, like spicy and thought-provoking. The best ever. Um, wow. Just great. So just want to say to all of our listeners out there, you can change the world tomorrow just by starting and listening today. Stay frosty and we'll see you for part two. Yay! Well, we've made it to the end of our episode. We want to thank you for listening. We hope you'll take something you heard today and use it to change the world tomorrow. We wanted to thank our music producer, Seth Hedges, from Uriah Wild Media. His website is in the show description. 
Also, a big shout out to Roddy Newton, our technical advisor. See you next time. This project was supported by Grant Number VOCA 2020 Green River 26, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet by the U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you.